So what is reformed? That's the theme of our camp this year. So what does it mean to be reformed? Are we Calvinist? Should we use that term? What term or what does that term actually mean? What does the term reformed mean? And what does that term imply? Is it saying because we call ourselves reformed that all others who claim Christ but who don't use that term are not orthodox? Is that what we're meaning by that? That they are not the joy that's set before Jesus? Well, I'm going to use a single verse to hopefully answer most of these questions tonight and then give us as a basis, a basis and a groundwork to address the rest of the issues in our other teaching times. My goal tonight is to determine what the term reformed is meant to convey because we need clarity here because words have meaning and we should be clear in in our minds first and foremost what is historically the definition of reformed and then determine if we should in fact use it to describe us and the verse that I'm going to use to help us determine this is Luke chapter 22 verse 20 which says, And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This may not seem like the verse to use, but found within it is the bedrock of what Reformed theology is. The covenant of God. That's the first of three C's that folks who hold to Reformed theology identify. Three C's, you're saying? Yeah. Covenantal, creedal, and confessional. We hold that the covenants of God are what determine God's relationship with man. It, in fact, the covenants of God, defines the relationship with the Godhead as well. And you would be right if you viewed God working with humanity as one covenant and not many. Yes, there are a number of progressive covenants made with man by God, beginning with Adam after the fall. And they're all revelations of that covenant of God. And they can be said to be progressive in nature. They're in fact revelatory in nature. Each one of them casts greater light to the reality of the eternal covenant of God, a single covenant. And the old covenants are not cast aside because they become obsolete. They're not changed because of a flaw in how they were written. If you want to understand how the covenants of God with man work, one of the ways you can do that is by stepping outside in the pre-dawn morning before the sun breaks over the eastern horizon. You walk outside before that happens. You might be able to see the outlines of things around you. You might be able to make out just generalities of what things are, be able to tell where things are. But as the sun begins to rise and the light of the new day begins to caress the morning air, you can then begin to make out more and more of the reality of the surrounding area around you until the sun finally does rise. The dawn, the dawn comes and the reality of all that is is clear before you. 
And this is what the covenants of God have done with man. And this is how the covenants of God work. The covenants of God with man are all part of the covenant that God made within the Godhead. That eternal covenant that is spoken of in Hebrews chapter 13. And there the author, in closing up that letter by admonishing us to keep our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus, and in verses 21 through 23 of Hebrews 13, he tells us that we should do this because... Now the God of peace who brought us from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, our Lord Jesus, equip you in every good thing to do his will, by doing in us what is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And then we're told of this eternal covenant once again in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. At the end of the age, we're told about the time before time began. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, speaking of the Antichrist. Everyone whose name was not written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the, uh, the, book of, life of the Lamb who has been slain. And that's the eternal covenant. The covenant of God in God, through God, and even for God. And this is the gospel. And the gospel is not plan B in creation. God was never blindsided by the fall of the angels, nor was he blindsided by the fall of Adam either. He didn't have to come up with a way to reconcile man to himself after he had created man. He had already done that. That plan that, the message of the gospel of God was already in place. He created both sets of those beings for his glory. And it is in the gospel. It is in the gospel that he receives the greatest glory due his name. And the redemption of those that are chosen in Christ happened long before God spoke creation into being. God made covenants with man throughout the Old Testament. And by the way, that term testament, when you hear Old Testament, that term testament actually means covenant. So you could rightly say the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. They're interchangeable. We might even actually desire to start thinking of those and using that term instead of testament because when you do that, then you don't separate the Bible the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. God is one, three in one, but he is one. And the Bible is one. We have the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And they're meant to be linked together. And God made covenants with man beginning with Adam and carrying on through David. They were separate from each other. They were progressive in nature, being very general with that first covenant in Adam. In Genesis 3.15, we're told, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on, the, on your head, and you shall bruise him on his heel. To that very specific covenant that God made with that man, David, as told to us in 1 Chronicles 17. It will be that when your days are fulfilled to go to your fathers, I will raise up one after you, one of your seed who will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build for me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. And I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me, 
and I will not remove my loving kindness from him, as I removed it from him who was before you. But I will cause him to stand in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. And all of them, they all pointed to, and they were all fulfilled in the new covenant, as told to us in places such as Matthew 21, 9, when the crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were crying out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And that's, again, in the New Testament or the New Covenant. And alongside of that, we're told in Luke 1, 32, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And then at the end of the Bible, Revelation 3, 7. This is what he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open. So it's right to say that the Bible is split in two. We have the Old Covenant and we have the New Covenant. With the Old Covenant pointing to and being a shadow of the reality of the New Covenant as told to us in Luke 22.20. But think of this. Wrap your minds around this. God, from eternity past, selected, hand-picked a chosen group of people as his own, whose names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life, who was slain before creation, Revelation 17.8. He has hand-picked on reasons all of his own, all within himself, a select group of sinners to be the joy that was set before him, enduring the cross and despising the shame for them, Hebrews 12.2. And it's on him that we are told to set our eyes because he is the chief cornerstone, the rock of offense, who is the word of God that was in the beginning that is with God, and that is God. Which brings us back to the need to talk about another bedrock, foundational aspect of Reformed theology, the Word of God. One of the tenets of Reformed theology, the five solas of the Reformation, the five alones, the five absolutes, that they use to stand against heresy with is sola scriptura, or scripture alone. In context, what they were saying is that scripture is the only rule and law for the church, and by that, the Christian. Not scripture and, and not even part of scripture, all of it. It's all one, and it's all the grace of God for his people. And that may sound kind of funny in your ears. Funny to actually think that Christians, people who are supposed to be known as people of the book, actually think, actually act like the book is the sole rule over the church and their life. And it may sound strange in your ears because many people claim this as truth and act like it's not. But it is to those that hold to sola scriptura. They are the ones that have no problems understanding what a pastor is. 
and why a woman can't hold this office. They have no issues with what is known as the regulative principle of worship and know that there is no place in the worship of God for specials, for smoke machines, for dance routines, for flying pastors, or even American flags. The reformers, in setting the gospel free from man-made religion, they looked back at the church and they were able to see that all the humanistic traditions that had polluted the visible church, that allowed heresy to enter into the visible church, they all happened when the church did not stand on sola scriptura. Look at me, because this truth is personal as well. You need to understand this as well in your own life. If you do not hold to sola scriptura in your life as the guiding principle of your worship and your relationship with God, you will, you will, you will find your life filled more and more with heresy. You will. So what is the regular principle of worship? It's this. If it's not specifically stated in the Bible as what is to be held in a worship service, it's not to be in a worship service. And God is very exacting in detail on what went into the tabernacle and into the temple and even into what the priests and the Levites wore, how they went about their duties. And those were just merely shadows of the true church and the true temple, which is the body of Christ. And he's no less exacting now in the new covenant. The church gathered together. And when they did, they sang songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. They gathered together in prayer, in the, in the reading of the word of God, in the preaching of the word of God. They gathered together for baptism and for the Lord's Supper. And we need to make sure that we are clear about what the corporate worship service is. This, this is not a corporate worship service. This is a corporate gathering of the body of Christ, which is why I'm standing up here in a t-shirt and shorts. But this is not the corporate gathering of the body of Christ, which is the thing that the regular principle governs. The corporate worship is special. It's the one time. This is why church is so special. Why going to church, being a member of a church is so special. Because that one time, primarily Sunday mornings, is the one time that you will be able to gather with the body of Christ that you have covenanted with for the sole purpose of worshiping and glorifying God. If you missed that service because you're fishing, because I just couldn't get up on time, I just whatever, you for the next seven days are never going to have that opportunity to do that ever again. And you have robbed your body of Christ of a member. The worship gathering is special. And the worship gathering is specific. It's 
from someone to someone. It's from the bride to the groom. It's not meant for goats, ever. It's not even meant for the bride. We, the bride, we benefit from the groom. But as we're told in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29, therefore, since we are receiving, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We come together to worship and glorify God. That's why we worship Sunday mornings. What pleases man, carnal or otherwise, can have no consideration at all. And that is the regulative principle. And the opposite side of the regulative principle of worship. That's called the normative principle of worship. In essence, they hold in the normative principle of worship, that if God has not specifically said that you can't do that in worship, then you're free to do it in worship. So, since murder is a sin, as the Bible tells us, they wouldn't murder somebody within a worship service. But just about anything else goes. And when that happens... They're all violating the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other God before me. And we are the body of Christ simply because of the covenant of God. And in that covenant, we are given commands. We are commanded by God to evangelize. We are commanded by God to live holy lives. We are commanded to God by God to baptize believers and believers are commanded to join a church and participate regularly in communion. So what is a covenant? In our culture today, we have a difficult time understanding the depth and meaning of this term and even this, what this event was. The closest thing in our culture that we had to a covenant was a covenant of marriage and we've lost that by and large. Now it's just that covenant, which is still a covenant, that covenant in our culture is basically just, well, it's like a lease on a vehicle. But a covenant, a covenant was a solemn vow that was sealed when two parties, they met between the, the two halves of these dead animals, Slaughtered just to signify what would happen to either party should they not keep the terms of that covenant. And this is what God did with us. He first made a covenant with man in the garden. And he gave terms that were simple. Enjoy all that I have given you. Do all that you desire. Just don't eat from one tree. And in that single prohibition, man took exception. How dare God hold, withhold anything from me? You thought that you actually knew better than God. And I say you because you may not have been there. But if you would have been there, you would have done the exact same thing. You took exception at God saying, enjoy everything that I created. 
don't eat that tree. So you broke the terms of the covenant. And in that moment, you slaughtered yourself. You rendered yourself. You removed yourself from that most favored position. And you placed yourself on the auction block of life. And you sold yourself to the lowest bidder. You, you looked around at your glorious father and your brother that, had, that you had. And you despised them. And you chose instead to be associated with, to be of the family of trailer trash. And there was no repairing the ruins. No way back outside the perfect sacrifice of a perfect man. And there were none. But God. And then God stepped out. And he stepped off. And he offered himself as a propitiation, payment in full. And he died in your place, rendering every drop of blood in his body for the remission of your sin. And this, this is a covenant. And it is this eternal, final, forever covenant, which is the bedrock of what Reformed theology is. But what about those other two things? Creedal, confessional. Well, creedal refers to ancient creeds that were written with the blood of the martyrs, the blood of the saints. What's a creed? Well, the term creed comes from the Latin word meaning or word credo, meaning to trust or to believe or to commit or to trust in. And they basically are just formulas. They form a systematic overview of whatever it is that they believe. They're not the Bible, but they're, and they're not equal to the Bible. We don't hold them as equal to the Bible. But what they do is they summarize specific aspects of the Bible. And the Reformed Church holds to such ancient creeds as the Apostles' Creed. Do you guys know the Apostles' Creed? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, our only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. On the third day he rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And thence she shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, not the Roman Catholic Church, but the Holy Catholic Church. The communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And the Nicene Creed, adopted in A.D. 325, revised in Constantinople in 381 which says, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and all the things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried and on the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. 
and in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeded from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets, and one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And again, we're not, when we say holy Catholic, we're meaning big C, meaning the church universal, not the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church is not Christian. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. And those are creeds. And this then brings us to confessional. So, if you commit a crime, you're going to do the time. Anyway, but if you commit a crime and you're brought in for questioning, and you, and you admit to that crime, the police are going to ask you to confess. Tell them the truth. What happened? Why did you do it? And the same thing can be said of that person who is in a trial, who goes and up onto the stand, who stands before the judge and the jury and swears to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing else, so help me God. They confess. And that's what a confessor is. It's also called a witness. And in Christianity, that term, confessor, is meant to be, it's meant to be that saint that proclaims the gospel. When we proclaim the gospel, we call that witnessing. Acts 1.8 But then you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And as the church moved, as it moved from being primarily Jewish, knowing the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, to being primarily non-Jewish, the church rightly understood that those that believed, that they needed to know who and what they actually believed in and how they actually came to faith. And this is why the confessions were developed. They, they were just merely extensions of the creeds. They took the truths of Sola Scriptura, the Holy Bible, and they formulated them into easy-to-remember chunks, kind of like the New City Catechism, in order to catechize new saints, in order to teach them about God, the God that they were confessing as their Lord and Savior. That first sea, covenantal, is taught and it's shown directly to us in the Word of God. The second sea, creed, these were the early church's summa, uh, summations of the word given to explain what is true Christianity and what is not. And that third C, confessions, these were the churches, the reformed churches' summations of the word. And they were given us to once again, to in, in a very exacting manner, demonstrate what a Christian and what a church is. And they are valuable, but only in that they take the truths of the Bible and succinctly categorize them in order to provide you, if you will, guardrails to keep an Orthodox church Orthodox. And this is why all Orthodox churches will normally tell you what confessions and creeds that they hold to as a means to keep them Orthodox. And the Reformers found within Scripture Five things that demonstrate what true orthodoxy is. The Word alone, faith alone, grace alone, in Christ alone, 
for the glory of God alone. And then after bundling these five things, they covered them with another statement. The church reformed, always reforming. If the five solas, if they're tied together in a circle, forming a wheel, as our logo demonstrates, if this is the final statement, it is this, the church reformed, always reforming. This is the thing that, re, that keeps that tire, that wheel, from going flat. The church reformed, always reforming. Is, it's the spinning of the wheel of the five solas. It's the manner in which we, as the church, always look at all five of the solas as one, never overemphasizing any of them. Grace alone. And we are, we are known as the church of grace or we are known as a church of faith, or we're known of a church of, of, we're the Jesus church, or the word church. Never overemphasizing any of them, but never underemphasizing any of them either. And always keeping the glory of God as the center of them. And this brings us to a point to ponder. A point to ask yourself, can a person... Or can a family, can they be reformed? Can they actually claim that? I'm reformed. I believe in the doctrines of grace. Can they be reformed and not be an active member of a reformed church? Can they actually hold to these tenets, to these three C's, and not be a member of a church that does? The answer has to be yes but not for very long. And the reason for that is that just as a false, just as a person who is in a false religion such as Mormonism, who then comes to the saving knowledge of Christ, how they cannot remain where Christ is not being preached rightly, where the glory of God is not the sole purpose of the gathering. A person who is given the true ability to see the truth of Scripture as given in the Word, they cannot remain in a place remain part of a body that does not have as its main focus the glory of God and not man. So what does this mean for those that are unwilling to leave that church or to leave being part of that place that doesn't have the glory of God as its sole purpose? Just that they were poorly taught. That they haven't been confronted with truth. They haven't been confronted with the truth of how it matters in where they worship. That their soul is the most important thing to the Lord. A person who has been shown the glory of God in Reformed theology, who has big God theology, they cannot and they will not remain in communion with people that make light of God, that degrade His name with programs and specials, People worshiping, songs and plays and car shows, all in the name of Jesus. They will desire to go and hear God made much of. To sing songs that make much of Him, not much of us. They, they because of their love for God in them, they know that for their sake, 
and the sake of their souls and the sake of the souls of their families. They, they have to fellowship with like-minded brothers to join a church that desires to make much of God, even if it causes problems within their family, even if it will force them to get a secular job, whatever that is, even if their wife and their children are going to miss out on all the fun and activities of that place and their unwillingness to do so, their unwillingness to leave because it's going to upset their wife and their children is evidence that they may be wrong in what they say that they believe. Perhaps more than just wrong. Perhaps fundamentally wrong. So you see, you can't say that you love God and not obey Him. You can't. And He commands you to worship Him in spirit, His spirit, and in truth, His truth. And the person who has been given the heart to love God, as He has shown to us in His Word, and if He has revealed Himself to you in His Word in this way, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. That person will pursue the bride and desire to become part of that bride because they love the groom and they desire to be part of the bride that loves him, desires to bring glory to him. Now don't mishear me. I'm not saying, nor am I implying that those that are nominal, that are in those nominal, those so-called churches, that they, they cannot or are not Christian. That's not what I'm saying. I'm positive that God has His saints there as well. I'm just saying that if He, that he has not at this moment opened their eyes to be able to see the truth as revealed to Him in His Word to this degree. And you, oh dear saints, you who hold to Reformed theology, Never think that you can argue a person into seeing Reformed theology any more than you can argue a person into salvation. It's a work of God alone. But you can and you should preach the truth to them simply because Reformed theology is big God theology. And it is, it is, it is, is, not is a way, but it is the way to bring about a great awakening. It is the means to shine the reality of God in the church to this God-hating world. But when you do so, when you do speak to those people, do so in winsome love. And at the same time, be truthful with people. If you know of a person who claims to adhere to the doctrines of grace and who doesn't covenant with a church that desires to proclaim the glory of grace through right preaching, right worship, right application of the ordinances, love them. Tell them the truth. 
Confront them in love. Tell them that they really can't be reformed. They cannot really truly see the glory of God through the lens, through that lens, through this lens, and remain where they are. They can't. And saints, if God has given you the ability to know him in this way, big God theology, reformed theology, five sola theology, if you can understand that he alone is sovereign over salvation, that although man is commanded to act, to use his will in confessing the truth of what he believes, that he must use his will to submit to baptism and to church membership. It is God who has given any and all men this ability and this desire. And it is God who has given you the ability to see him as sovereign over salvation and the desire to bring glory to him and his body. And this is a gift. You are, you are not seeing it this way because... You're smart because you're a brainiac. This is a gift from God to you. But saints, don't squander this gift. Don't be like that slave in that parable of the talents who buries the gifts that the master has given him. Use them. Multiply them. But not for you. But for your glorious master. Demonstrate the reality of that which you proclaim as truth. I am reformed. I am a son of God. And I desire to bring glory to God in my life, in all areas of my life, but specifically in the body of Christ, which he has made me a member of long before I ever covenanted with this body of Christ. Know that. It's not of you. It's all of him. So this is the basic found rock or bedrock of what reformed theology is. What it means to be reformed. I'm covenantal. I believe that God works with humans through covenants. I'm creedal. I hold to the ancient creeds. I'm confessional. I know that the confessions, the Belgic confessions, the London Baptist, London Baptist Confession of 1689, that's a truth of Scripture. That's what it means to be reformed. Let's pray. Father, Lord, how often, how very often we have not only squandered the gifts that you've given to us in salvation, but how often have we also, in our own pride, have determined that it's because of our wisdom, because of our smartness, that we see things in the Bible that others don't. 
Father, convict us of this sin because it's stealing glory from You. But Father, I pray that at the same time, Lord, that we would just be amazed that You, You would have opened our eyes to actually see the truth of Your salvation in our life and has shown us the truth of Your Word over and again as we just open Your Word and find the doctrines of grace on pages after pages after pages. Lord, may we marvel at Your grace in our lives in doing this. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, guys. Um, time. Ten minutes after eight. So, um, 8.30, meet back in the, um, the dining hall for our puzzle game. Um, so, you'll want to get in there. And, Kevin, do you have tables set up in there already? They will be, yes. So, as you go, go around, there's going to be eight tables. And on each table, there's going to be a list of names for people on those tables. Find the table where your name is and stay there. So... You got about 15 minutes. You guys are great at golf, the card game. We're not playing that. Mm. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah. See be a possibility. That's your joke? I thought jokes were supposed to be funny.
I didn't. I just did though. <laughs> I didn't put a set hey, actually, time on actually it. actually just proved that you <laughs> yeah, can put a driver. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, what? I'm just saying, so 30 minutes, you know, 40 minutes, one hour. 30, 40. After uh, the first game, we can go again. Okay. I was gonna do it. I was gonna do it. Uh, no. We gotta, we gotta play the close game. What were you gonna do? I was gonna run out of the team. I didn't. 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 Oh, I know that. Give me a break. I was like, I can't believe nobody else jumped in front of me. Zach, when I got to worry about you, I'm in trouble. Well, I, she did. 
I mm. had her do it. Mm. So, but I did the typical thing that we do at a... Me too. Really? Yeah. yeah. Yep. That was so tasty. Yeah. I loved it. <laughs> you see that, uh, where are you going to plug your phone in at? Well... I left, I left a plug open for you. Oh, you got oh, one over there. Yeah. It's just that that's the only amount that'll come out, so... I think I'm just going to do it right there, though. If okay. I need to look at the time, I'm just going to have to really sit up and look at the time. Um. Okay, so, okay, we're doing the puzzled. Mm-hmm. And then that's it for the night. Yep. Sit on top of that box, maybe. Yeah. No, and I loved how many people I 